the end of this service, friends and brothers and sisters, we will take the Lord's Supper, which is a, a drama of the gospel, of how it is that we have been forgiven and the hope that we have. In a moment, we'll look at a text that is quite dramatic as well. Well, currently, there are two wars waging in our world, Russia and Ukraine and Israel and the Hamas terrorist group. Other groups are seemingly trying to bait the United States into war by exploiting the senility of our president and attacking and killing own U.S. soldiers. And these are just the wars and acts of aggressions that we know of in our world. I want us to think this morning about another war just as real, but more serious. It's a war, friends, between the forces of good and evil, between Satan and God. If you're here today as an unbeliever, I know that in our materialistic culture, we might eye roll when we talk of Satan and God. And that's good on one hand. We want to examine the data. Jesus, the, the, the Bible says in Isaiah, come, let us reason together. That's good. But there are many people in the world who believe at this moment in positive spiritual forces and good energy and the like. In fact, most people in the world, the, the, the largest worldview of the peoples of the world is an animistic worldview in which most people of the world already believe in spiritual forces between good and evil and good energy. So you don't want to be culturally narrow, do you? By not believing in spiritual forces. And if, friends, we have a category for positive spiritual forces, for good energy, then shouldn't we also have a category for bad spiritual forces, for bad energy? C.S. Lewis, some of you are quite aware of C.S. Lewis, was a taught literature in Oxford. He once, once made an interesting observation about this in the Scroop Tape Letters. He writes, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The devils themselves equally are pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Well, friends, the passage we're going to look at today is neither materialistic nor is it magical and superstitious, but it is realistic about the life that we cannot see. It's realistic about our lives and gives us the honesty that we need in life. Would you locate the last book in the Christian Bible, the very last book called Revelation, Revelation 12. Now, Lord willing, next week we're going to begin a series on the book of Revelation. I'm sure that I will disappoint many by what I say, or what I don't say in the next several weeks. Uh, one of the ministries that pastors have is the ministry of disappointment. <laughs> and I'm sure that ministry will be in full effect the next few weeks. Um, how long will the series be? Well, in the spirit of Groundhog Day weekend, I read that if a pastor wakes up and sees his shadow, it means the sermon series will be at least six more weeks. So you can count on at least that. Well, different kinds of literature use different ways to communicate. So you don't read a dictionary like you read a story, and you don't read poetry like you read a biography. What does that have to do with our passage? Well, Revelation is a style of literature with a long-sounding word known as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature uses stories 
And those stories come with a plethora of fantastic symbols and images. Not a plethora of pinatas, but a plethora of grand images and symbols. Maybe think of something like a graphic comic book or a work of dystopian science fiction or maybe even an allegory like Pilgrim's Progress. That's something like the literature of Revelation. But be careful because if we press too hard on the symbolic images, not letting them play out in their own way within the biblical canon itself, then you'll end up saying that the locusts with scorpion tails in Revelation 9 represent Apache helicopters in the first Gulf War. Who knew? Don't get so focused. When I lived in uh, Fort Hood, Texas, my dad was a rear detachment chaplain in the Gulf War. That's one of the interpretations that I heard of Revelation 9. The Apache helicopters were the scorpions and the locusts in Revelation 9. Don't get so focused on the images and symbols that we miss the significance. And the most important images and symbols, even that we'll see today in apocalyptic stories, are tied to previous appearances in earlier parts of the story. So you already know how this works. So, for example, the ring in The Lord of the Rings plays a key role in each unfolding story, and with each volume, its significance grows. It's a symbol of power, a symbol of, uh, of what we value most, and the like. But the image for the ring doesn't begin in Lord of the Rings, of course. It first appears all the way back in that game of riddles between Gollum and Bilbo Baggins and the Hobbit. Here's the point. Previous images are going to reappear later. And symbols and images in the end build upon those appearances previously so that Gollum at the end of the story in Return of the King is still Gollum from the beginning in Hobbit, but he's totally different now that he stands in the belly of Mount Doom. That's how images function in apocalyptic literature, especially in the last book of the Bible in Revelation, that the images that we're going to see are based on previous images, but they intensify and even expand as they move along through the Bible storyline until those symbols come to their full and final consummation in the book of Revelation, which is at once the end and the beginning of the greatest story ever told. I remember asking my father near the end of his life, uh, driving in a car, much of his mind was gone, but I asked my dad, Dad, what's your favorite book in the Bible? And he said, Revelation. And I said, yes, the end of the Bible. And he said, rebuking me in his dementia, no, son, the beginning of the story. That's Revelation. At once the end and the beginning of all things being made new. All that is to say, the images in Revelation, a fantastic as fantastic and dystopian and as Salvador Dali-like as they are at times, are drawn nevertheless from previous parts of the Bible. So one has to read and reread the entire Bible to make sense of these symbols in the final book of the Bible. So the key to Revelations, Revelation, is not a chart, but it's reading the Old Testament. Because in the final book of the Bible, John, under inspiration of the Spirit, is summarizing and recapturing all the images that have come before, albeit now with intensifying blockbuster special effects and fantastic beasts with apologies to the film series of which the book has nothing to do. John not only speaks, and we can put it this way, John not only speaks in Greek, as it were, John speaks in Old Testament. When we arrive at Revelation 12, John the Apostle, the one whom Jesus loved under the direction of the Holy Spirit on the Lord's day 
is capturing a fantastic scene. It's a scene of a bloody dragon, a monstrous serpent, a baby, a woman, and a lamb. You see how all these images now combine into one? It's like a dream that you have in which all these crazy images are mashed together to tell a story. That's what apocalyptic literature does. While stories communicate with plot and poetry with rhyme, Revelation communicates with dramatic, rapidly changing, expanding symbols. Now we're in Revelation 12. Eventually we're going to get towards the end of our message this morning, Revelation 7 to 12 of chapter uh, Uh, verses 7 to 12 of chapter 7. But John frames the story in the middle with two related scenes. Think of it like this, perhaps. This might even happen in the Jason Bourne films or Mission in Action or whatever, but sometimes the movie opens and you're confused about who's doing what, but you're pulled into the story and you later realize, oh, they started at the end of the story with all of this action, and then it happens and they go back to the very beginning of the story. You don't know what happened, but now you're drawn in to see how did we get there. Well, that's what I want to do this morning. We're going to start by reading the end of Revelation 12 and then go back to the beginning of this scene. But let me give you the three main scenes before we look at each and focus on 7 to 12. 1 to 6 is scene 1, episode 1. 7 to 12 is the middle and 13 to 17 is the end. So 1 to 6 and 7 to 12 and 13 to 17. And each scene is following one key character a great dragon, frustrated and furious. The back of your order worship kids, Miss Layla's given plenty of places to draw pictures. There's lots of things to draw this morning, and I would love to see how many of the things you come up with right here in Revelation 12. So let's begin with the end of the story. It won't make much sense as we read it at first, but don't try to figure out the details. Just watch this dystopian trauma come to life and come to a conclusion. Revelation 12 13 to 17, this is what Holy Scripture says. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, a times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is God's word. Well, now you have your first taste at apocalyptic literature. And what a sight it is. We're introduced at the end of the story to a dragon. In verse 15, you'll see that dragon is also called a serpent. And the word in the original sounds like what serpents do. Ophis. This dragon is a serpent. And whatever the price, precise meaning, this recently defeated dragon, this hissing serpent, has been thrown down to the earth. And now the serpentine dragon swoops off in anger to go after the woman who, according to verse 13, had recently given birth. Now, for a dragon to go after a man in armor is terrifying, as the old tales like Beowulf tell us. 
But for a dragon to go after a woman and a mother who's just given birth is more terrifying still. But, but, as Gandalf and Bilbo and the dwarves were rescued by eagles from the mouth of goblins, this woman too, according to verse 14, is rescued by the swift flight of eagles. But the dragon is not done stalking the woman. He finds her once more. But this time, instead of breathing fire from its mouth, like we expect dragons to do in our mythological lore, this dragon throws up a terrible torrent of water from its mouth to drown the woman in a flood, verse 15. The woman barely escapes with help from the earth and the eagles, and foiled again, the dragon sets off in a furious rage, now not only raging against the woman, but now spewing its draconian wrath against all of her children, too. And who are her children? Well, look again at the end of verse 17. They are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is our first hint at how apocalyptic imagery often works. The images stand in for something. In this case, this image of the, the children of the woman stand in for real people. That is, whomever the dragon is raging against, he's raging against these kinds of people. People who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, to simplify it, in Revelation 12, John reveals the rage of a dragon against God's own people described as people people who keep the commandments. God's true people are pursued by a furious dragon, a monstrous basilisk-like serpent. And the point is, for every reader, we are the hunted in the story. We are the prey of the dragon, hunted by a supernatural serpent who's declared war on believers like you and like I. And the whole story, doesn't it remind us of what the Apostle Peter said elsewhere? That Satan is like what? Satan is like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. Yes, in a real but invisible world, friends, we are at this moment being hunted by a dragon who's also the lion. At this moment, even this morning, it's not nonsense. It's not rhetorical flourish. We could say accurately that between the rows prowls a lion this morning and under your seats slithers a serpent, an ancient dragon. And he's at war. And he hopes to convince you that he doesn't exist. And that it's foolish to think he's real. The scene opens our eyes to the scripture reading that our brother led us in this morning that we do wrestle against unseen principalities and powers. We wrestle against the dark arts, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now, now think of how complex and comprehensive the Christian worldview is to other ways to view the world. What I mean is sociologists will tell us that our main problems are external and social. Our problems lie at the level of environment. Psychologists and therapists tell us that our problems lie internally with our unaffirmed desires or our, our failing mental health. A good way to test, we need professional counselors and professional Christian counselors. Not all doctors are the same and not all Christian counselors are the same. If you go see a Christian counselor, ask them if they believe, among other things, in total depravity and the existence of the devil. 
And if they say no or say yes, ask them what they mean. Be careful of using a professional counselor who says there's Christian, just as you should be wary of seeing a doctor who doesn't believe in x-rays and MRIs to account for things that we can't see but that are real, like our own inherent depravity and the existence of the devil that energizes the world. The biblical picture of man's problem includes those things, but it's far more comprehensive and actually more nuanced. The biblical picture of man's deepest problems adds a category that energizes all the others. Listen to Paul. There's a dragon. Laugh if you want. There's a prince of the power of the air who's at work, Ephesians 2.2, energizing every act of disobedience, great or small. Well, so closes the end of this movie, 13 to 17, a furious dragon rages against God's people. Friends, we are at war. We're in a spiritual warfare, whether we realize it or not. No wonder the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, not only deliver us from evil, but Matthew 6, 13, we can also translate, deliver us from the evil one. Every day, teach us to pray. But what started it all? What caused this great dragon to rage against this woman and the children whom we now know are believers according to verse 17? Well, let's now go back to the beginning of this true story and see what's led to the rage of the dragon. Well, the opening begins like lots of fantasies films do with two great signs in the heaven. Revelation 12 verses 1 to 6. Read this with me. Watch it with me. Revelation 12, 1 to 6. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and casted them to the earth. And this great red dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness and she has a place where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. This too is the word of the Lord. We recognize the characters, at least two of them, from the end of the film. Now, a great red dragon and a woman giving birth. The woman is so close to giving birth, John sees this graphic, loud image that she's crying out. She's vulnerable. She's helpless, crying out in the contraction pains of labor. And at the foot of her bed is not a midwife. At the foot of her bed is not a gowned doctor. At the end of this writhing woman's bed stands a great red dragon. He's called great to describe his hideous size and appearance. And if you keep looking, he has a misshapen head, misshapen and disfigured because he has more horns than heads. Look at the serpent. John says he has seven heads, but ten horns. He's hideously out of proportion. 
And the numbers 7 and 10 in the Bible symbolize completeness and fullness, meaning that this great and hideous dragon is completely evil and represents power, full power. As Martin, sometimes we sing a mighty fortress of and people amen at the wrong line. Martin Luther said this, not about God, but about Satan. On earth is not his equal. That's this dragon. My son and I were, well, he was going watching YouTube and he came across this snake documentary this week. And apparently herpetologists tell us that once, maybe perhaps, the biggest snake that we know of was Titanoboa. And they showed recreations of this serpent who would have been 50 feet and weighed 500 pounds. Titanoboa, 50 feet, 500 pounds, with seven heads and ten horns. And along with his misshapen head and grotesque side is his alarming color. We have an expression in English. uh, He is red with anger. Well, red symbolizes the rage of this dragon. Or Lady Macbeth can't get the red blood from her hands, the murder of blood. Well, this is a a red dragon, red because this dragon is red with rage and red from the blood of those he devours. He's a red serpent coiled up, ready to start with rapacious rage. And this hideous in appearance serpent endowed with supernatural strength stands waiting for something. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for this woman crying out in pain to give birth. Why? It's grotesque. Look at the end of verse 4. The monstrous dragon waits to devour the baby boy as soon as it's born. What a film scene. A woman in the labor pain while a bloodthirsty dragon, a monstrous serpent, poised like a giant hooded cobra, waits for the baby to be pushed out so he can eat it. It's appalling and frightening. But at the moment of the baby's birth, something happens. Did you see what happened in verse 5? The male child is born, but is immediately caught up to God and to his throne. And how is the child described by John? One who rules the nations with a rod of iron. Well, there are many things that interpreters disagree on in Revelation, but everybody agrees that this baby boy is none other than Jesus Christ. In Revelation 12.5, we're told of his incarnation and his birth and his resurrection and ascension at the same moment from the words of Psalm 2, this baby boy is Christ the King, the Messiah, who rules the nations with a rod of iron. What a war this is. The red dragon is raging against the long-awaited arrival of the Messiah. He's been waiting for a long time for it to happen. The woman here then, I think, is not simply Mary, but the woman stands in like the bride in the New Testament, in a sense, for, for the entire line of Messiah, which began with Eve. Remember Revelation as the last book of the Bible? That adds to previous parts of the story and, and brings it to a conclusion? Well, we're told in Genesis 3, 5 that God predicted a war between the seed of the woman and the serpent. And that serpent's going to rage against the seed of the woman. And now Revelation 12, as the Bible ends, gives us a final window into that bloody war promised back in Genesis 3, 15. And as the story moves on from Genesis, what do we see indeed? It's the dragon then here in Revelation 12 that energized Pharaoh to kill all of the Hebrew babies 
And which babies? Baby boys. The red dragon was raging against the line of the long-awaited male Messiah, raging against the woman. And when Haman tries to commit genocide against God's people in Esther, the red dragon is behind it. And then at Jesus' birth, the dragon energizes Herod. The dragon energizes the power of the state to slaughter all babies. But like Pharaoh before him, Herod's only interested in baby boys, slaughtering them. The rage of the dragon against the woman is on display. The dragon is a murderer behind all systems of death and murder. And while not an exact parallel at all in the importance of what's going on here, whom do you think is behind the murder of unborn babies in our world today? And all of our political theories and therapeutic explanations and sociological theories that search for reasons, don't forget to leave place for Revelation 12. The dragon energizes systemic Systems of murders. Thus, the abortion industry and the last midterm election and its outcome, especially in some states, which analysts on all sides said was largely determined by women motivated for unrestricted access to abortion on demand, it was all energized and funded by the dragon of Revelation 12. He's a murderer. He energized the Holocaust. He energizes all war and all genocide. And he's been so successful at his craft, the dragon has deceived some. Some progressive Christian women who say the matter's complicated. The devil now has turned the woman on her own seed to do his bidding. But, Praise the Lord, the rage of the dragon was defeated by the baby boy. The sight of the bread and cup among us this morning tells us when we take the bread and the cup, the dragon did not win. And he will not finally win. In fact, this text tells us he's already been defeated with a death shot in his heart, taking everybody out on the way down. Well, how do you know? Look at verse 5. That male baby Jesus was born but caught up to heaven where he didn't simply escape but where now he reigns over all with a rod of iron. So the scene ends 1 to 6. A furious dragon is frustrated by a reigning king. Maybe we can describe the two scenes this way. Verses 1 to 6. A furious dragon rages against God's son. Verses 13 to 17. A furious dragon rages against God's people. He rages against his son, and he rages against God's people. And here's then how the two scenes relate, at least one way, I think. The furious dragon is raging against God's people, and he's so furious because he lost the war against God's son. If I cannot get God's son, verses 1 to 6, I will rage against God's people. So what hope then do we have? I mean, in a sense, yes, Christ is risen and he's reigning and is glorious. In a sense, Christ is safe. He's reigning at the right hand of the Father. But what about believers like us who are left down here, who according to verses 13 to 17 are still being hunted down by the dragon? What hope do we have against the hideous strength of this great red dragon? 
Now comes the dramatic center and great surprise of the entire chapter 12. In verses 7 to 12, we have the reason we take the Lord's Supper, which is at once our comfort and our call to holiness. Look in verse 12. Look how the middle scene ends. Read the first line of verse 12. What does John tell us? Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Isn't that a surprise? That in the midst of this dreadful chapter comes news to rejoice. Rejoice. It's not simply because Christ is reigning, but because what he's going to talk about in verses 7 and 11. So why do we have grounds to rejoice in the face of a raging dragon? Well, we've identified the woman and her children, the child, the baby is Jesus. Now let's identify, in case you weren't aware, who the dragon is. Read verses 7 to 13. Let's watch the identification of the dragon and notice the two things he does most. Now, verse 7, war arose in heaven and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. I'm talking about that ancient serpent who's called the devil who's called Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Yes, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, his Messiah have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. This is the word of the Lord. I won't answer all the questions, but just two I want to ask. Who's the dragon and what hope do we have? Who's the dragon? If we're in doubt, John told us in verse 9, did you see it? The great dragon is thrown down, the ancient servant who's called the devil, Satan. Those are familiar names that we know. The dragon is just another name for the devil himself. It's true, friends, that sometimes the devil, as a deceiver, as this text says, transforms himself into an angel of light. That's part of his deception. The devil loves to make evil look noble and good. And make you feel virtuous for sharing in evil. Like Pharaoh's magicians mimicked the miracles of Moses for a time, Satan can mimic the virtue of God himself for a time. And many are deceived by his false alluring light, like many are deceived by the beautiful patterns of a deadly venomous snake. Come close, they say. Empathy is helpful, but empathy untethered from truth will lead you and those around you to hell. John here unmasks Satan. Yes, he can transform himself to an angel of light, but don't forget who he really is when he comes into the light and purity of God. He unmasks Satan as a hideous, coiling, monstrous serpent, a dragon. Seven heads and ten horns. 
blood dripping down the sides of his fangs. It's the devil that makes war against the woman, Christ, and his people. It's the devil that energizes our world and entices us like a master fisherman to bite down on the beautiful bait of sin. The devil always wraps sin in bacon. He's a dragon. He's a serpent. The devil himself, as a dragon, he devours. As a serpent, he deceives. Beautiful but deadly. And John summarizes the acts of Satan's aggression with two words. You can put all these images together, and John says Satan, the dragon, acts in two primary ways. He acts as a deceiver, and he acts as an accuser. Look at verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient dragon called the devil, the Satan, and the what? The deceiver of the whole world. Then verse 10, twice John describes Satan's actions like this. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night. Who is the dragon? The dragon is the devil who primarily works in two main ways. He's a deceiver and he's an accuser. Now stop for a moment and think of how Satan works on this, on us. Gathered with a group of brothers Friday to think about applications for this. One of them pointed out that we often individualized accusations and deceits of the devil. But within the historical context of Revelation, it's not just chapters 2 to 3 that were written to seven churches. If you go to the end of Revelation, this whole book was written to those seven churches. Which means we have to think of applications not only for ourselves, but how does the dragon deceive and accuse local churches? This is a bigger game than just you. Think for a moment how the devil, the serpent, deceives congregations. Think of a biblical example. Think of the church of Corinth. Paul actually says, your church is being deceived. You remember the place? Sounds like he wrote it just this morning. 1 Corinthians 6. Don't you know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? I know that. I don't know if you do. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10. You know how the dragon works in a church like this? It starts like this, maybe. You work with someone whose lifestyle is described by one of the things in 1 Corinthians 6. You hire them, you manage them, you go to the park with them, you do lunch breaks with them. They're genuinely kind. They even talk about the Bible. They speak of going to church. They thank you when you say that you're praying for them. And you start to be deceived to do the devil's own work. You start to think, you know, we might have misunderstood some of the things this verse says. And you say the very thing that Satan did, the serpent said, did God really say that? 
And then you have that conversation with someone in your small group or over lunch and in a Bible study in town. And when it comes time to confront those kinds of sin that Paul warns of, you back away, maybe excusing yourself because you don't know all the information or it might not apply to them. And if it comes to a vote in a church for discipline, you vote no, or like a silent serpent, you don't vote at all. And soon the whole church of Corinth is infected with the venom of that kind of deception, often cloaked with the colors of hospitality, just as the coral snake uses the king snake's beautiful colors to draw you near and strike with its venom. A hidden brood of vipers forms. You like similar things online. You make similar comments. It looks so pretty and appealing and sounds and feels so virtuous. You've rediscovered something Martin Luther himself missed. And unchecked among members, it leads to the disciplined situation in 1 Corinthians 5, where an entire congregation has been so deceived that they boast. That's the word Paul uses. They boast that they're tolerant towards things that God actually forbids. They take pride in their boasting, and Paul shames them for their boasting and says, you've redefined sin in the name of compassion. They've been deceived. Deceived as a congregation by the very things Paul says, don't be deceived by. And then... The churches boast so long in their kind of deception with some of the things in 1 Corinthians 6 until a group of black pastors in Africa has to call an entire denomination in the United States to repent for forsaking God's word. And the church just up the road from us has to vote to come out of a mainline denomination and go under bishops in Africa and pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to get out. Not because one church, but an entire denomination has been deceived by the dragon. Those denominations then do the slanderer's work by slandering those who oppose, labeling them as hateful bigots. The dragon, the slanderer, is alive and well, deceiving churches in our world, in our city. And here's the question, is he at work deceiving our church? It starts with you. And me. Individual deception. I'm not angry and proud. I'm just responding to wrong. We're not sinning. We're just committed adults thinking of getting married and sleeping together for a time. I'm not missing church. Quote, I'm just showing self-care today for my mental health. I'm not gossiping. I'm just asking for their perspective. I don't think that was wrong. I think the Bible is without error when it comes to the gospel, but I'm not sure when it comes to ethics. The Bible's teaching on that matter is oppressive. There's a book in our bookstall that I I took home to make sure I brought back and then I left it at home. (laughs) Deceived by the dragon, maybe, I don't know. I've recommended it before, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. He says in that book, the devil deceives us one way. Here's one way the devil deceives us individually and congregationally. Here's what the devil does. He shows you the bait and he hides you the hook. On the one hand, he says, that attitude, that desire, that action is not really that bad. He makes it appealing intellectually, aesthetically, ethically. What's he doing? He's showing you the bait. That's what he did to Adam and Eve. He's showing you the bait. That's what he did to Judas. He showed him the bait. 
And then as soon as you sin, he accuses and says, you're a sicko. You can never recover from that sin. You should never talk about what you did to anyone. He shows the bait and then he hides the hook. That's the dragon. He's a deceiver. He's a deceiver. He not only deceives, he accuses. Accuse doesn't mean makes insults at you. Accuse here is a legal term where you make your case in the court. He makes charges. He writes up a formal complaint and submits it. And most of the time, those accusations, like the ones against Joseph before Potiphar's wife, have some kind of basis in truth. She did have the coat. They were alone together. That's what makes them sting so much. And others believe them so easily that, that, that they have a ring of truth to them. And then you have churches who are trying to be faithful and perfectly on biblical matters so that our brothers and sisters up the road are being called unloving bigots. Hear the accusation? Hear the charge? Here it comes. Or in the first century, the beast of Rome, like Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, shamed and treated those seven local churches and their leaders for not bowing down to the idols of the state. Don't stop worshiping God, Rome said, Caesar said, Domitian said. I'm not telling you to stop worshiping God. I just want you to offer a pinch of incense in the name of the emperor too. Just do that. And faithful churches are shamed and labeled as enemies of the state for not worshiping at whatever the ribbon calls of the month is. As for individuals, the devil shames and accuses and slanders us falsely. Ron Bean was talking Friday and just talking about the sting of false accusation that we can experience as believers. The sting of false accusation. And sometimes they're completely false, but not always. Here are two ways I think the devil accuses us. He justly accuses us of present sins. He justly accuses us of present sins and then gives us a false conclusion. You have sinned. That's true. You better not deny it. But then he says, and now you can't be forgiven. Had he convinced you that you sinned, he now convinces you that you can't be forgiven. Since you sinned like that, you can't be his child. Since you sinned like that, you can never be forgiven. He justly accuses us of present sins and then presents a false conclusion. Second, related, he accuses us of past sins to condemn us in the present. Past sins to condemn us now. Since you did that back then, you are still condemned now. What you did then is still who you are today. Past sins to condemn us in the present. And sometimes I know it can be painful and the closest and tenderest of all relationships in a marriage, but sometimes a spouse can repent of something and it's still held over their head five years later. That's the work of the dragon. Well, how do we overcome this practiced, ancient, powerful serpent? The same way that Christ did in a surprising way. I buried the whole headline. The whole point of this message was to be 7 to 12 and now we're here. Verse 10. 
He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives to death. Do you see all that we sung this morning? That Jesus crushed the head of the serpent by being struck by the serpent on the cross. That Jesus won by dying. That he offered up his life as a sacrificial lamb that took our sins upon him and was charged legally for our sin. He was accused legally, charged, condemned with our sin, legally condemned that we could be legally forgiven. He was legally condemned that we could be declared righteous. We have overcome his charges and not only conquered his accusations, but we've overcome now the times that we have been deceived. How? The bloody dragon has been defeated by the blood of the lamb. And it doesn't matter whether you felt on the night of the Passover that the angel of death would pass over you. It doesn't matter how you felt and how anxious you were that there was blood on the doorpost. The angel passed over. We have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, irrespective of how you feel and how awful he's assaulting your soul or your family or our church at this moment. You see, when Satan accuses us of past sins, as those listed in 1 Corinthians 6 and says, you know, those who do those won't inherit the kingdom. That is true. Don't deny it. But don't forget the rest of verse 6, which was Paul's point. But such were some of you. Past sins repented of, the foulest of them, Paul says, are cleansed. You are washed. That's who you are. You are sanctified. That's who you are. You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So in a moment, take this bread and this cup and in faith silence the accusations of the accuser of your soul. Not only this, when he justly accuses us of present sins and then gives a false conclusions. We overcome that slander too by the blood of the lamb, not by saying I'll try harder, not even by saying I'll never do it again. We overcome the slander by the blood of the lamb because the slain lamb has raised now to become my advocate, the one who rules now with the rod of iron. And if any man sins, first John two, two, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. There's always a way back into the father's favor, always a way back into the father's arm, because the father himself so loved the world that he gave his only son as an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, upward I look and we see him there who made an end of all my sin. We silence accusations past and present by the blood of the lamb. Let's bring back brother Martin Luther. For my birthday, my my daughter made an envelope full of handwritten quotes from people in church history. Here's one that I pulled out from that envelope. Remind yourself of this. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell, but what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, I will be also. And last week, my son, 
texted me this from Martin Luther. When the devil calls me a sinner, he comforts me greatly because Christ died for sinners. In Romans 8, Revelation 20 appears in a reverse negative image. We're told in Romans 8, there are real charges against us. Who will bring any accusation charge against God's elect? You see, Satan, the accuser, has been thrown down and out of the courtroom and disbarred. So the next line says, who can lay any charge now because God has justified us? But Romans 8.34 says that not only has God justified us, but then says, who can now condemn us? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died and raised, and he's at the right hand of God interceding for us. You know what that means? Here's the point of Revelation 12. The accuser has been replaced by an intercessor. The accuser has been replaced by an intercessor and having conquered the dragon by the lamb's blood. Now, we don't live for our own glory, but for the lamb's glory. For we now are those who keep his commandments and hold fast to the word of the testimony. The supper is not only for our hope, but for our holiness. How can you not live for him who loved you even to the point of his death? Because we've overcome him by, by the blood of the lamb, now we resist Satan. We keep God's commandments. The accuser's been replaced by the intercessor, and the love of the intercessor enables our love for him. We keep his commandments, having been loved so much. So let us not underestimate our foe but neither must we underestimate the blood of our risen and reigning lamb. Here's my last thought as we get ready for the table. There's a dragon named Smaug, or however you say it, that features large in The Hobbit. And Tolkien writes this, it does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. Revelation 12 says this, but neither does it do to leave a bloodied lamb out of your calculations if you've been saved by him.